welcome into episode 74 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, for old time's sake, we got one more game flight to do for the next five months, so let's get her done. The Canucks started off the week with a 4-1 loss to the Calgary Flames. Matthew Heimwer got his first goal as a Canuck. Canucks bounce back, beat the Oilers 4-1. Heimwer has two more in that game as well. And uh, JT Miller gets a couple of helpers. The Canucks lose 6-5 in overtime to the Calgary Flames. Travis Hamanick nets his second goal of the year. Tyler Grayovac gets his third, and Brock Besser scores his 21st. Besser, Hamannick, and Myers all have a goal and an assist. The Canucks pick up a 4-2 victory against Calgary. Demko in net again for that one. Bo Horvat also dropped the mitts in that one. And in the final game against the Calgary Flames, the Canucks lose 6-2. Bo Horvat gets 19 goals, finishes the season with 19 goals. JT Miller gets his 15th of the year, and Jack Rathbone gets his second assist of the year. So we flipped the script this week. This week, you got all the losses, and I I got both wins. The law of averages. (laughs) I like it. Uh, Five games and seven nights. We We don't see that very often, fortunately. No, and, you know, we discussed it on last week's podcast, but obviously you can tell the players are tired. Uh, You saw a number of high-profile Canuck players turning down the invitation to play at the Worlds for Team USA. Still haven't heard whether or not Bo Horvat has been invited or will play for Team Canada. Um, But, yeah, I think the players are actually really looking forward to not playing hockey for the next few months here. No, I don't think Horvat's going. Canada already put out their roster uh, with who's going over there, so I don't think he'd be joining. I don't know. This year, it's a little bit different, obviously, with everything this year. I did see that in Latvia, though. They are allowing some fans in. They just passed that in the parliament today, which should be really nice. Latvian fans, they're crazy, man. They, they are some of the best fans I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those European countries that you don't necessarily think would be massive hockey markets or would have a rabid fan base are incredibly passionate, incredibly loud and boisterous. And it's something that I think is often missing from North American sports in general. Uh, You know, you look at soccer fans and you look at rugby fans. It's just it's a whole other kind of level of fandom and cheering and singing and I, I remember there was a, a gentleman who came into our work establishment, Pete, and he was going to a Canucks game, and he was originally from Switzerland, and he was talking about how you know he goes to all the games in the Swiss League, and he was just kind of shocked and surprised about how quiet uh, Rogers Arena was, and you know he showed me a video that he had recorded from a year ago at a Swiss game where literally like the entire stadium was singing and chanting. It's just, it's just a whole other level that we don't have in North American sports, unfortunately. Maybe college football would be as close as you would get, maybe, and maybe college basketball with the bands and stuff like that, but it's not like European sports. 
Swiss fans are also crazy. If you ever get the chance, go and see the World Hockey Championships. I've got the Spengler Cup on my hockey to-do list as well one day. But the World Championships, hell of a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with the Swiss, the Latvians, the Austrians. It was was a great time over there in Stockholm. That was 2014. Well, we got a lot to talk about on this episode. Uh, We'll be talking everything Canucks and we'll see what sort of tangents we go off on we got to talk coaching we got to talk GMs we got to talk players ex-players sorry outside of the organization there's a lot to really dive into it's been a, a busy week busy busy few weeks really when you look at all these games played um also you can find us on Twitter I'm at Pete underscore gas and the podcast is at Canucks speak Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. And Pete and I continue to build this ever-growing outro playlist on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. Be sure to give that a follow. Be sure to give that a listen. I mean, hey, we're putting you know a few fractions of a penny in some musicians we really love and respect's pocket. And we will do a quick around the room segment at the end of this episode, just kind of touching in with all the playoff series going on around the league, all eight of them. But let's let's get to what we what we're here for. I mean, this is this is a Canucks podcast, and it's been, I guess, a noisy week to complete a tumultuous season. I mean, for me, I've, I made a long list of things that have that have gone wrong this season, and I, I don't think anyone really needs to to hear the full list um it just but just looking at it it was a year unlike any other and now we're going into an off season that looks to be unlike any other and let's start with the coach because the verbiage today has changed a bit and it sounds more and more likely I've heard from Rick Dollywall and Ian McIntyre that it sounds like Travis Green is close to an extension with the Canucks Doug what do you think about that yeah, I mean, I'm on board, and honestly, <laughs> my opinion doesn't really matter. It's what the players are saying, and I know, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. You don't expect the players to come out and blast their coach at, during their final interviews of the season and, you know, say, oh, yeah, Green's a terrible coach, but, you know, player after player today and yesterday came out saying that they thought Green is a great coach, a great teacher, a great mentor, He's got some great systems in place, and they all want to see him come back. I think Green is a good coach. I think the Canucks are, this season has just been all over the place, right? And you look at the success they had last year in the bubble, and you look at how bad the Canucks, you know, fell this year. I don't think they're as bad as they were at their lowest moments this year, and I don't think they're as good as their highest moments in the bubble last year. They're somewhere in between. People are upset, and I get it, rightfully so, that the Canucks struggled so mightily this year, you know, but there were a lot of things that happened. Obviously, they lost their best player in Petey for over half the season. That's a thing that happened. Uh, their travel schedule. Their travel schedule is one of the worst and toughest travel schedules in the entire league, especially early on. The Canucks had, up until their COVID outbreak, the Canucks had, I think, what, like six, seven games on the majority of the teams in the Scotia North Division. 
I think all those played a factor, but I think Green is the type of guy which I think a lot of coaches do appreciate, or a lot of players, pardon me, appreciate. He's the type of guy that he doesn't criticize his players to the media or publicly. He would do it in the dressing room. He would do it behind the scenes. And I think players really respect that. I also think it does go, you know, to show that Green can coach younger players. I mean, they had three Calder Trophy nominations in a row, one winning the Calder Trophy in Elias Pettersson. Uh, I like it. I would like Green to be extended. It sounds like it's going to be a two-year deal in theory, which, again, I'm okay with. I don't know if Green would like a little bit longer term, but I would assume that's okay as well. What about you, Pete? I think after the comments the players made today, there's really no way that ownership could say, no, we're, we're taking a different direction. I think that, you know, I've had issues with something that Green does, but I like Green as a coach, and more importantly, he has that room. I mean, those players like him. They they all say good things about him. And the only thing I, I really was kind of shifty on a bit is some of his player deployment, deployment and roster moves uh, for, for guys bringing in. Like, you know, it was very vet-heavy, and I, I get that. He's trying to play to win, and he's also doesn't have a job, so he's trying to put himself in the best situation that he can um having said that though to your point as well yeah three straight calder finalists and we got a, a great look of of hoglander this year and down the stretch we got to see some guys like rathbone and lockwood who look like they could be players on this team as well um i i just think after this year this was not a normal year this was a throwaway year by every stretch of of the definition. It was just like you mentioned the schedule and and of course losing PD, those and the and the covid. All those things combined just made it just a fucked up year. There's no other way to describe this season. And so it, it's not I, I agree that they're better than their record shows, but there's still there are eight teams in the NHL that finished worse than them. So the Canucks were still better than a quarter of the league, which is which is kind of funny in a, in a, a way that because we just figured they're the worst team in the league and now they still beat out eight teams which is nothing fantastic but I still think they're better than that but getting to seven against Vegas that was when they were playing a bit out of their mind and and Demko was just like drinking his milk every day and and just going for it <laughs> and uh it's they they that was maybe a bit of overachieving but the team has the framework there and they have a young core that respects green and and you know another guy like jt miller who has had the best his best career years playing under travis green who is part of the core i know he's a few years older than the other guys but he's a part of that core and that's who you want to build around and if all these young guys are like hey we want green to be the coach like ownership has to listen to that because if they were to go out bring in like an old soul like I don't think they would ever have brought in a guy like Babcock, but even like a Gerard Gallant or someone, a completely different style. After this season, I think uh, it would have been very hard after next year to convince Horvat and Miller to sign extensions before they hit UFA. Yeah, I know some people were speculating that if Green did leave, Claude Julian was a name that was being floated out there. Um, yeah, I mean... Often this happens, right? And, you know, the Canuck fan base, despite it being very divided at times, is extremely, extremely passionate about this team. And 
I think whether there are pro-green fans, there are anti-green fans, I agree with what you said, Pete. You know, I do think some of Green's deployment can be questioned from time to time. I didn't understand the final game of the season. They didn't even put Gadjevich in. And, you know, guys like Pearson didn't play that last game. Uh, why are we playing Gadjevich? Or why aren't we playing Gadjevich that last game? It just, that was a little odd to me, especially since they had called him up. He did his two-week quarantine, didn't get to play for the first three games after his quarantine was done. Gets in for one game, had four minutes of ice time. I know he had 17 minutes of penalty that game. But still, it's just like, why doesn't Gadjevich play the final game, a mean-nothing game of the season? I question that. I definitely do. Well, they did have three rookie wingers already in the lineup that game. And I I know, I get it. Uh, I think they wanted to see a little bit more of Cole Lind. And out of all those guys, like Lind, Gadjevich, and Lockwood, I thought Lockwood looked the best uh, as well. But yeah, I know. I mean, you could have snuck Gadjevich in, but then there's also a bit with, if you're going to the older players in the room, like, do you guys want to play? And they're like, yeah, we want to play. You know, you, you got to do that as well. So I, I get it, but they did have three rookie wingers in the, in the lineup that day anyways. Sure, but like I, VC, I believe, played last night. You know, I don't need to see any more Jimmy VC. He's a guy like, you know what? We tried. It was a free, free player. I'm done with the VC experiment. Uh, but again, yeah, you know what? The, yeah, but that being said, I, I do think Green is a very good coach. And I do think if Green... And nothing's official yet, but if Green doesn't come to terms with the Canucks, I think he can get a job uh, this offseason absolutely coaching another team in the NHL. Going back to the JT Miller point, I absolutely agree with you. I know there's a lot of speculation going on right, right now, and I, I believe some of the media uh, people that are reporting this, that there are apparently a couple of players, or at least one player that has indicated that they would maybe like to move on. Not necessarily asking for a trade, but just saying that, you know, they would be open or would appreciate maybe being traded somewhere else. Some of the speculation is that it could be JT Miller. JT Miller was finally given an opportunity to play in a top six role consistently. And obviously this season was a bit of a disappointment, but he still was one of our top players this year. And last year, JT Miller actually got Hart Trophy nominations. People actually voted him for the Hart Trophy last year. I don't think JT Miller was the Hart Trophy winner last year, but people still voted for him. And I think JT Miller has to really appreciate the fact that Travis Green gave him that opportunity, believed in him. And I know his body language throughout the course of the year was up and down, and you love the passion and you love the fact that he wears his heart on the sleeve. But at times, you've also got to be like, okay, man, not every time you cough the puck up or every time the opponent scores, you should be smashing your stick on the ice, smashing your stick against the boards. That being said, anytime media members would question JT Miller's attitude, his body language. Travis Green went to bat for him time and time again and said he loves, to, he's a player that wants to win. He's a passionate guy and I need more guys like him in this dressing room. Second leading scorer this year, leading scorer the year before. I don't think JT Miller wants out. The name I've heard a bit is Nate Schmidt, which kind of makes sense uh, to me. I think some of these new guys coming in, it was just a weird year, right? You never get to really know the team and get acclimatized or anything else. Um, but we'll just see what happens. It's all speculation right now. Uh, I don't think JT Miller 
wants to go anywhere either uh, just with the two seasons he's had in here in Vancouver they, they've been probably the the two best of his career um, I, I wanted to go back to something you said here and this is a bit of a, a sidebar before we get into um, some of the more stuff with uh, behind the bench in in, in the head office um, but I've been kind of thinking about Canucks fans and you talk about these divides out here and I really think that these divides, I'd be really curious to see where people's passions and, and ideas and thoughts come from. I think that there's these real age demographics that that whatever era you kind of grew up with the Canucks, that's sort of where your expectations are. So let's say you were born before like mid-70s. You know, you grew up with a, a decade of suffering and then this magical run in 82 that kind of came out of nowhere. But besides 82, the Canucks from like 1970 to 1989 we're not a really good team. So you kind of get then into the late 70s, early 80s kids, which is which is what I am. And you're kind of used to this pain of getting shit kicked in the Smythe division over and over. And then you finally get the, the rise of the early 90s teams. And that's when you finally get a bit of hope until the team takes that turn in the late 90s. So then if you get kids that are now born, you know, maybe mid 80s to early 90s, you're getting more used then to having a better team, and that's what you grow up with. And then to get into the early 90s babies, you're kind of used to that disappointment again. And then you get into, like, the late 90s babies, and that's more when you're, like, from that point on until 2014 or so, the Canucks had a really good stretch. You had the West Coast Express morph into the 2011 Cup team. So if you are born in, let's say, you know, 1995, that's just what you're used to. Your whole life up to this decline that we've seen from 2014 or so onwards under this Benning regime, that was just all you knew was success. And that is your barometer is that the Canucks should always be up here. So when you get to this kind of rebuilding, retooling slump of a few years that we've had, I think a lot of fans from certain demographics haven't experienced that before. And are are outraged and want to get back to those winning ways. And hey, I want to win every year. I want us to be competitive too, but there are ebbs and flows with how professional sports teams works. So I do think a lot of these rage battles are divided by fans who either grew up in misery and grew up in success. And I think it just, as a fan, that's what you're used to and that's what you're introduced to. And it does kind of skew judgments on both sides a little bit when the truth is somewhere in the middle of the two. That, anyways, that's my little sidebar generation theory I have with Canucks fans because I do think if you're born in 1978, it's very different from being a Canucks fan born in 1998. No, I mean, that's fair. You know what's funny, though, is the the fans that grew up in misery are the ones that are being overly positive, some would say, and the ones that grew up with the team being good are the ones being overly negative, some would say. Exactly, but that, that's funny. right. Yeah, but that's exactly it is uh, because that's just what you're used to, right? Like if you're if you grew up with all these bad years, this team, like I started following the Canucks in 1984 when I we our family just moved back from England. I was six years old and that was the first year. And the Canucks like in that for, I was looking at some of the games from that year, like the Canucks, they allowed double digits in a in a game like at least a half dozen times that year they were they were bad so i look at that team and then i look at the core of this team and i'm like 
you know what? Like, it's not as bad because this core is younger and much better than those mid-80s teams were. So, and then you take it, like, kids who, let's say, were born in, like, 2004 and were just, like, you know, you had that 2011 run. And that's your standard, right? That team was stacked. That was a great team. And so that is what you're going to hold a lot of things up to. So I do think there is an element of like the team that when you, the year you became a fan, that's always sort of the barometer and the high watermark. So for me, the watermark is pretty low because that 1984 team was one of the worst Canucks teams ever. No, I mean, those are all fair points. And I also think going back to your point about fan expectations, and this kind of leads into our next topic is that, rebuilds do take longer than I think most people realize. And the fact that this management group, and I'm going to include Linden in this management group and ownership is to blame for this. They kind of stalled on doing a proper rebuild. And I know a lot of people were saying, Oh, I don't think the fans are going to be willing to do a full on rebuild of tearing everything down. I disagree. I think this fan base is smart enough and passionate enough to be able to go through a proper full on rebuild. Um, And the fact that they kind of waited almost two, three years before they finally actually started to do a proper rebuild has hurt the trajectory of where this team should theoretically be today. Because, you know, they're still, according to Jim Benning, two years away, whatever that means. Uh, But I do think it takes a lot longer to do a proper rebuild than what people think. And I think there's this weird expectation that, you know, we should, we have the pieces in place. And and, And I also get this. I get that people are like, look, we have great talent. Why aren't we better? We have the likes of a Brock Besser, uh, Elias Pettersson, a Bo Horvat. Uh, Quinn Hughes, you know, this team should be ready to make the next step and we should be a perennial playoff team year after year. And yet we still aren't. And there's so many bad decisions and poor contracts that have been handed out throughout the course of the years that have all made this team not be able to consistently take the next step. The rebuild thing in Vancouver, it's, I, I feel like, Ownership has never wanted a rebuild because they want that playoff gate revenue every year. They're, they would rather get three or four home playoff games in every year than have to go through a drought of not making the playoffs and not getting that extra revenue. And this is this has really hurt the team. And I mean, you know my theories, and, the, and it, there's been a lot of discussion out there. You're now hearing that there's going to be a, a sell the team banner going on around there. But I have long felt that ownership has had a hand all over this team and this is you know this is a good lead way into talking about the GM is look I'm not I'm not team Benning and I'm not you know I'm not pro or anti Benning I I just like for me that's not really the core of the problem it's a part of the problem but the real problem is you can you can put I and this is why I'm just not like you got to fire Benning because the way the organization is currently structured, you're not going to get a veteran savvy GM or a young forward thinking GM. You're going to get a guy who the owner feels like fits that hole and is able to communicate with. We heard that from the Benning presser last time we talked is how him and Aquilini talk every day. That's not a good thing until this team creates some autonomy with their hockey operations and cuts that umbilical cord with ownership, it's never going to be able to 
take that true step that they need to. There's just so many puzzling decisions. And again, like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Benning does make all these decisions on his own, but I really feel like there is hands-on and that if we were to just take out Benning and putting another GM, I don't necessarily think we're going to have any real progress because of this way this organization is structured right now. I agree. I, I definitely think ownership's got their hands all over decisions that are made or not made. Uh, I saw someone tweet today. I, I, I think it might have been Riot Survivor. I believe it was him about Nonus and when uh, Dave Nonus was let go. And apparently one of the reasons why Nonus was let go is ownership was really trying to pressure Nonus to make a trade for Brad Richards. And apparently it was like Alex Edler and I believe Ryan Kessler for Brad Richards and Nonus turned it down or something like that. And the next year they didn't make the playoffs and he was out. And Gillis and Francesco Aquilini, they did have a friendship and a relationship prior to him being hired. I do believe Jeff Cortnell, whose name came up this past week as well, also had a role in Gillis getting that job. And Gillis has reported that he had a trade in place to get rid of Ryan Kessler the year before, and that was squashed. I don't think Gillis wanted to hire John Tortorella, and that was squashed. You know what I mean? He was pressured into hiring John Tortorella. There's rumors that Trevor Linden thought that the Canucks needed to be a little bit more patient on the rebuild, and whether Benning and Wisebrod got in Francisco's ear and disagreed with Linden, and that's why Linden got pushed out. It all points to ownership and, you know, people want to yell and scream about Benning and how terrible he is and how aloof he comes across and I get it, but at the end of the day, ownership is still signing these contracts. They're the ones that are rubber stamping these offers to Louis Erickson for six times six, uh, Brandon Sutter's extension, Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, like ownership still has to see the contracts come across their desk and say yay or nay before they before Benning can offer any of these contracts out. I think, and I know you have kind of agreed, that one of the reasons why Francesco wants to keep Benning around is because he's a yes man. You know, he kind of, you know, lets Francesco get in his ear and gives Francesco a lot more input than one of those really kind of solid hockey operation guys would. I keep referring back to Dean Lombardi, who apparently Francesco had reached out to multiple times. Now, he refutes these reports, but there were reports that he'd reached out to Dean Lombardi after he had departed from L.A. and was, I believe, the assistant. He's an assistant in Philly. I don't know if he's the assistant general manager or assistant to the president of player uh, of hockey operations there. And Lombardi turned him down both times, said he wasn't interested. And is that because he's got a reputation around the league of being a meddling owner? I think so. Yeah, for me, you know, Benning can stay or go at this point. I don't really care. It's because it's the, the the problem extends beyond that. And and now you see this week, you know, we we've talked a bit about uh, Jeff Cortnell, and and we've heard a lot about the Sedins in recent days. And you know, this is all well and good, but you're talking about people who don't have a lot or any experience in running the business. So, you know, which is in the Sedin's case, that's fine. They got to start somewhere, but that would seem to imply that they're going to be subordinates in this and not necessarily people above the ladder. What the team needs more than anything is outside voices you know it doesn't need to be people that the aquilinis have friendships with or have been in the organization or 
have this ties. The Canucks need outside voices and and a few of them. You need a president more than anything. You need that buffer to just no no more Benning talking to Aquilini. The president can report, but the president has the say and then you need a team around there i mean there's rumors that wisebrod is going i'd be fine with that nobody knows what he does anyways so <laughs> uh, make some changes around benning and above benning and create a buffer and that is the only way that i think that's the only way that i'm okay with keeping benning if this this arrangement i'm not okay with right now so if they were to do that i'd be willing to see what happens but for me, that's the bigger problem is is you can't just take out Benning right now and put in another GM because you're not going to attract the right person and it's not going to make the organization any better if that person is still going directly to the source every time. So I would like to see them maybe make some changes around. Like I said, I'm indifferent to Benning. He can stay or go. I don't care, but they need to get people outside the organization and they need a president badly. I agree. They definitely need someone else in the front office, another voice, someone who can question ideas, push back on certain things and be that buffer with ownership and have more of a backbone towards ownership and push back. If ownership's trying to pressure Benning or whoever to, you know, sign players to contracts just so we can try to make that playoff revenue. You need that long-term plan and the long-term goal to be consistent team year in, year out. Not just, oh, this one trick pony where we made the playoffs this year for a number of reasons, but next year we're going to take another step back. I don't know if there are a lot of people that want to take on that job right now. The Sedin situation is interesting. I've heard some people float out the the idea that perhaps the Sedins were offered a job and they turned it down and would rather be mentored in by somebody who, you know, knows the job and what it entails as opposed to just taking the job like Trevor Linden did and not really having any experience. Now, I know Linden, you know, was a player rep for the union back in his playing days. Obviously, he is a local business owner with Club 16, but, you know, a hockey operations president is a lot different than a lot of those roles and maybe the Sedins wanted to kind of be eased in much like you saw with Steve Eiserman and a lot of other four I mean Chris Drury right now you know he floated around the league and now he's just taken over the GM job in New York they probably want to kind of be mentored in and learn the ropes before taking on that title and then the other thing with the Sedins what happens? Is one of them the president and is one of them yeah. the GM? Like, are they both co-presidents? Are they both co-GMs? Like, does one go in president or GM the Abbotsford team? Like, it's just, it, it is really interesting about how that dynamic would actually unfold if you do get to the point where you're hiring them for some sort of, like, front office job. And then there's the financials of that too, right? You're hiring two guys and... That's two more paychecks for a team that has laid people off yet still found the money to re-sign guys like Pearson and Demko during all this uh, as well. Uh, it's, again, like, I, I, I trust the Sedins. I mean, they, they're great hockey minds. I know they obviously still follow the team, but they're still within this bubble of an organization. And, uh, and Jeff Cortnell is, is too. And uh, 
it's really time to get some fresh blood, some some young forward-thinking blood and some seasoned blood. You need a bit of both right now. You need that person who's been around the league, who understands the relationships, the dynamics, how things works, and is at the top of the food chain and is that that buffer, so it's no longer going to Aquilini. But then you need the young guys around there, the people who are forward-thinking, looking at, into the analytics, looking into some of the advanced stats, looking, watching games, scouting games better. Like, that's what they're doing. They're going out there and actually watching and, and assessing talent and figuring out what we need to do to get better. And that, for me, it's it's not going to happen with any combination of Jeff Cortnell, Henrik Sedin, and Daniel Sedin. And for me... Hey, it, more voices, that's great, but I don't trust that that's fully the right dynamic because they all still have Francesco's ear. Yeah, and I think I heard, I forget who it was, but someone was saying that Canucks actually have the most former alumni working for them, more than any other team. And I know the Oilers were kind of, that was the Oilers shtick for all those years with Kevin Lowe and Craig McTavish, and but... You know, I don't know if it's always good to have your alumni working for you, right? Like, obviously, you know, it pulls on the heartstrings and, you know, they love the team and they're loyal to the team. But it doesn't always mean they're the best person for the job. The other thing with this management group, and I don't know if this is ownership kind of tightening the purse strings, but they don't seem to have any specialty people on the team, right? Like, during the Gillis era, Lawrence Gilman was the cap guru, right? He figured out the cap and could figure out creative ways to get deals done. They don't seem to have that. Now, I know, look, to the credit, they hired Ryan Beach, and I know Canucks Twitter and a lot of Canucks fans love that and think that's a great, great hire. Um, I think he does more video stuff with them. I'm not sure exactly what his role is, and that is a step forward in my opinion. But they don't have these like specialty people like where this person's sole purpose is working on the cap and becoming up with creative ways to sign cheap players or, you know, being able to to use the cap space you have to your advantage. You know, we've talked about numerous times on this podcast about, I hope the Canucks can take advantage of their situation heading into the expansion draft with their defense. I don't have the confidence in this current management group to be able to do that. Jim Benning was sold as this draft guru and I wouldn't say he's a guru, but I do think this is some of the best drafting the Canucks have ever had in their history. Now, the same argument could be made. Well, when you're drafting near the bottom or the top of the draft every year, yeah, you, of course you're going to hit some hit hit on players. I mean, you you absolutely should be. But there have been some you know second round picks and later round picks that have also equated to solid NHL players for the Canucks. And Jim Benning is who we thought he was. He is this draft guy the Canucks have been able to restock the cupboard, so to speak. The problem is a lot of their high-end prospects graduated to the NHL a lot quicker than I think most people anticipated. So now it seems like the cupboards are bare again. Um, but they, he needs more than that. He needs more help. He needs someone who can help him with the cap. He needs someone to like help him strategize the offseason a little bit better. You know, I just, time after time, I just think, Things just kind of happen on a whim. It's just like, oh, this opportunity's come knocking. Okay, I'm going to explore this and focus on this. Meanwhile, you have three players, you know, pending free agents that you haven't reached out to or you haven't contacted about potential re-signing them. It just, yeah, it just seems so singular focused at times. And it's like you need to have a broad outlook on everything 
to do with your hockey club? Specialists like sleep coaches and, and travel planners, you know, things that we used to have under the old regimes there. I believe that was under Gillis, wasn't it, who had the, the sleep coach yep. uh, in there as well? Um, you know, a couple of other things I want to just uh, touch on in there. Uh, the cupboards, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. The, the cupboards for a long time, well, a long time, a couple of years at least for the Canucks, they had one of the top five prospect pools in the league. Pod Colson is the last blue chipper, really, that we have. And you could maybe argue Mikey DiPietro to a lesser extent. He's maybe not quite a blue chipper, but he's a solid chip. Uh, but Pod Colson is 100% graduating this year. He's going to be on the team. I, I don't think anyone expects otherwise. The guy's been playing against men for a couple of years. He is ready. So with him graduating and with some of these guys that we've talked about, like it looks to me like Jack Rathbone is here to stay. I, he's he's jumped ahead of you, Levy, uh, on my charts. And from the two games I saw out of Will Lockwood, he jumped above Cole Lind and Jonah Gadjevich for me, which is an actual leapfrog. He was, I think, my third forward prospect uh, in Utica this year was was Lockwood and he jumped up past those guys just with the way he played so you're starting to see more and more guys graduate here which you look at the pool now like let's say you know let's say Gadjevich is in Utica but Lockwood and Rathbone and Lind all stay like all of a sudden your your pool is looking pretty low and this is after a year where we didn't have a pick until the third round as well so the Canucks do need a very solid draft this year you got to get those cupboards going but this also ties into what the Canucks need and how they can weaponize some of their spots in the expansion process like right now you're protecting Ulevi Schmidt and Myers there is an argument to be made that you could bring in three defensemen and expose those three defensemen up to those three. Like, I mean, Myers and Schmidt, they've got hefty contracts. It could help us to get those five millions off the books. Yulevi, he's being jumped by a couple other guys on the left side. The left side is very crowded right now. Uh, and I don't know if this team can do that because, okay, they got the Schmidt deal, but was that was all right. A third rounder, I, I can live with that for Schmidt, especially if they do decide to trade him and flip him. That, that I think they can get more than that. But we all know the Miller one, and I don't want to rehash this, how it felt like he overpaid. And uh, and then there's the Gaudette trade, which Highmore down the stretch actually has changed my tune a little bit. Highmore's played better down the stretch. But I don't trust I, – I, what I'm getting is I don't trust his his professional trades with this end and his overpaying. And then you talked to, as well in there about the singular focus and that Tyler Toffoli article in the Players' Tribune was just damning about that. He never even got an offer, which is just ridiculous. And a lot of people theorize, myself as well, is because – they were so focused on the OEL trade and trying to make a trade for Ekman Larson work that they lost sight of everything else. And this is what happens when you have a small team that doesn't think outside the box. This is why you need these different people. You need different people looking at things. Like if you're looking at an OEL trade, look at like, hey, this is how it would implement us signing these other five guys that we lost. And, uh, you know, it all just comes back for me that, there's, you know, you mentioned drafting, and I've said it before on this podcast, it is the best era of drafting I can remember. Um, last year may not be a great one with not having a pick till the third. But everything professionally, well, a lot of things professionally, not everything, um, but a lot of those trades just haven't worked out. And we're still going to wait and see what happens with Godet for Highmore, the most recent one.
Yeah, I think a lot of the times some of those trades, it's that old school of thinking like, oh, good Branson's that big, physical, tough defenseman that you need. And it's like, well, the game has changed so much and it's so focused on speed and skating and keeping your legs moving. And also those big stay-at-home defensemen, I mean, they're still exist in the league, but you can't just ragdoll a guy in front of the net anymore, or cross-check a guy like... You know, Chris Pronger made a living. I don't think if Chris Pronger was playing in today's game, he'd be able to get away with half the stuff you used to get away with. You just can't do that stuff anymore, right? And so it has changed the game. And a lot of these guys that have that old school mentality that you need this big, tough, physical, stay-at-home defenseman, well, so much of the game now is predicated on puck possession and zone entries and zone exits. And if you can't make the first pass out of your own zone and you're coughing up the puck or you're flipping the puck up in the air, 20 feet in the air, for God knows why. I mean, this was Good Branson's calling card. He'd get the puck and then just flip it up in the air, literally giving possession back to the opponent. You're like, what are you doing, dude? Like, skate it out a couple of feet. Look for a pass. Um, and yeah, professional scouting with this team has kind of, you know, it. it there's a lot... There's a lot to look at where you're like, man, what were they thinking here? Why did they do this? I mean, even you can make an argument, you know, Nick Benino, Brandon Sutter, like I would rather have Nick Benino. I think he's been far more productive than Brandon Sutter has. I know Sutter was thought of to be this defensive specialist and a guy that, you know, is a great shutdown uh, center, but he has never really been healthy for the Canucks and he's very one dimensional in his offensive game. And his defensive game hasn't really lived up to the hype or the potential that I think a lot of people thought it was. I think a lot of it was because of his last name and who he is and what that name means to the league. And again, just another move that didn't make sense, especially since the Canucks had just acquired Benino, I believe, the year before in the Ryan Kessler trade. Um, so there are a lot of questions that I have with Benning. And I look, I think it is time for the Canucks to have moved on from him. Um I really believe the reason that the Canucks aren't moving on from him is because ownership doesn't want to have to pay Benning to sit at home. I really yeah. think it comes down to the financials. I don't think, I mean, you look at, I believe there was a report, uh, Rick Dollywall said that the the Canucks team have lost $20 million this past year just with the lack of gate revenue and what have you. And I don't think they're looking to pay a guy, and who knows what Benning's making per year, but I don't think they're looking to have Benning sit at home making, let's say, one and a half, two million dollars while they're having to pay a new GM that same amount of money, right? It just it doesn't seem like it's smart business acumen for the team. And I know people are like, oh, the Aquilini group, they're they're ruthless. They'll fire anybody, sure. But at the end of the day, you know what they care about more than anything? making money and not losing money and you know what they'll they'll stick by their guy for a year or two if it's helping them cut the costs and this is also an off season where the canucks really should explore some of the buyout options there's some candidates that they can buy out so there could be some money there where you're paying guys to sit at home or play for another team as well so uh, i think that is a big part of it as well uh one guy we haven't touched on yet is ian clark and we've heard the comments from the the goalies and the, and the players about Ian Clark and how much he's helped them and how much they want him back. Sounds like it's going to be hard. What do you think? Do you think Ian Clark will be back? It's not looking good. But, I mean, you look at what Demko said. I believe Tyler Myers even made a comment about Clark and how he keeps everybody accountable, which I think is, you know, great to hear. 
I don't know why the Canucks aren't able to get a deal done with Clark. It seems a little strange to me that they can't come to terms with him. It sounds like that the players love him. I know Mikey DiPietro said how much he loved him. Obviously, Demko came out. Demko's mom came out and <laughs> stood by Clark as well. Uh, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's a little strange to me that they can't get a deal done here. I I believe Thomas Drant said that it, he when he reported about Travis Green uh, potentially being signed to a two-year extension, maybe by the end of the week, he said that the Canucks are going to take a shot at trying to re-sign Ian Clark, but that deal's a little bit more difficult than a Travis Green one. Who knows? Maybe Clark wants a little bit more guarantees or wants a little bit longer term. I don't know. I don't know what his family situation is. I don't know if he wants to be closer to his family. And in order for him to stay on the West Coast, the Canucks would have to loosen the purse strings a little bit to keep him here. But he seems like he is definitely a goalie guru. And I, if I was ownership, I would be doing whatever I could to try to re-sign him. It's a big part of why we're no longer the goalie graveyard. We've had a long string of great goalies come through. I hope they keep him. Maybe there was thoughts that all the coaches weren't going to be coming back and they were going to clean house. But after what the players have said, I think maybe ownership may have changed their mind and said, okay, we got to bring back green and green may be saying as well, we got to bring back some of these other guys. So I really hope he comes back. Uh, it, it would help this fan base as well, who still reels from the thought of losing Judd Brackett. And uh, again, like I said, you need some good people around you. If you don't have to worry about goaltending, that's a pretty nice position to be in. Um, one last thing before we uh, get into our around the room playoff segment here. Uh, Petey came out, talked to the media. Sounds like he should be fine for next year. It was nice to see him them see him again, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. We hadn't heard anything from him, and it sounds like he hyperextended his wrist against the Jets in what looked like a very harmless play, but uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, he sustained a fairly severe wrist injury. He said that there was talks about potentially getting surgery, and the doctors didn't think it was necessary, and he should definitely be ready for the start of next season. He also said that he is going to fly back to Sweden in the offseason and do his offseason training there, where the past year he ended up staying in Vancouver and doing all his offseason training here. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was great to see him out there again. It was great to see him talk about how much uh, he just wished he was on the ice playing with his teammates and how he really missed not playing the game of hockey. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think it makes sense going back to Sweden uh, as well. I mean, if you're able to, I I mean, we've all seen it. Numbers are coming down. Things are, you know, things are looking a bit better right now these days. You can think about things like that. Like I, I think about going over to see my family in in Europe uh, and how it might actually be possible with what's going on in the UK as well. So I don't blame any players for wanting to go and spend the summer out of Vancouver and just reset because, the NHL is going to start on a normal schedule next year. I think you're going to see fans in all the buildings, and Montreal is going to have fans in this playoff round, so that's a start here in Canada. I think you're going to see cross-border travel. I think you're going to see a schedule that's opened up to not just playing in the same division. Not a guarantee yet, but we'll see. Uh, so I, I don't blame him one bit for that, but it does sound like he'll be 100% next year, and... That is, again, that's a huge hole for this team is you take out their most offensively creative player, one of their best players, and he plays in less than half the games. That's something that I think a lot of fans 
do forget at times is that we were doing a lot of this without Petey. Yeah, absolutely. And Miller was playing. I know some people think, you know, maybe you could put Miller as your third C or a combination of Miller, Horvat, and Petey as your three centers moving forward. But Miller was having to do a lot more because Petey wasn't on the ice. He was playing a position that he has played before and he does have experience playing. But I don't know if he was completely comfortable playing that position, even though he said he was and he enjoys playing center. But you look at how much success he had last year playing with Petey and playing the wing. I, you know, he was just asked to do a whole bunch more than I think he was expecting. And the puck was also on his stick a lot more. Where last year, you know, the puck was often on Petey's stick, breaking out of the defensive zone and into the neutral zone. And this year, Miller was having to do that. And that's where I think he saw a lot more of those turnovers coming from Miller than we did the year before. But at the end of the day, man, it was good. I was glad to hear Petey finally talk because literally he hadn't heard anything about Petey or the injury. And I also don't understand this. If if the Canucks were never going to bring him back before the end of the year, why not just tell everybody what had happened? Like, I know there was speculation that it was a wrist injury, but why not just say, yeah, Petey dislocated his wrist against the Winnipeg Jets March 1st. And, you know, we were contemplating surgery and he thought the best thing to do was just to hold him out until next year. Why? Why did we have to wait to the final game of the year to have PD kind of come out and actually say that? It just, it always boggles my mind. Yeah, I can't answer that one. I don't know if there's implications or anything else with uh, the league and injury and LTIR and COVID this year. Maybe there was. I- I'm not 100% sure about that. But uh, you can't deny that the the chemistry that Petey and Miller certainly do have. I I have long said I, I would love to see those three guys down the middle at center, but I've been slowly changing my tune a little bit with that. Um, of course, the wingers aren't deep enough to make that work, um, but if they were, that would be a great option. It's just the Miller and Petey chemistry. That, that's a big thing, and I think that was part of Miller's frustrations this year. Uh, I hope Miller is back. I, I think he will be. I think you know he'll reset, and once he gets back out there and he can put that lotto line back together again, I think good things will happen. Doug, should we do a quick around the room, just do some quick thoughts on these eight playoff series here? Absolutely, we should. I think you're going to want to hear this. Uh, no, I'm just playing. I'm, I'm having fun here at the hockey game. And I want to start things off in Florida, because uh, this is a series that was really interesting to me. Tampa Bay now has all these guns come back. They're up two nothing on Florida. What do you what do you think of uh, the way they've gotten around these cap regulations? Well, clearly my prediction was wrong because I well again the series isn't over yet, but uh, Kucherov has not looked out of place whatsoever. I just I don't see how this isn't cap circumvention. I'm sorry, but oh, it is. He he just happens to be able to come back game one of the playoffs just perfectly timed. It's like, come on. Um Well but they it could, is what it they, is. They couldn't uh, bring him back earlier because of the cap. Like they were in a but I, I know if like if he's healthy, can he sit on L T I R? Like, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's just it. Like how can he how how can they get away with putting him on L T I R if he was indeed healthy for you know, four weeks ago, but yeah, I mean, it's a whole other situation that just pisses me off, especially with the Luongo recapture penalty, cap recapture penalty. It just, it's just one of those things. It's just like, oh, Florida can, or Tampa can get away with it, but the Canucks can't. Um, yeah, Tampa looks good, man. They look like they're firing on all cylinders, and 
they're going to be the team to beat in the East, in my opinion. Well, them and Carolina. Uh, Colorado up 2 nothing on the Blues. Uh, we had some nastiness with Nazem Kadri last game. Uh, Colorado, they, they, they look really solid. It'll be interesting to see what the Kadri suspension will be. Uh, but, man, uh, that, that team looks fantastic. Great first line and a great blue line. How does Kadri keep doing this? Like, it just it's boggles unreal. my mind. I just, I don't get it. But yeah, Colorado looks really good. I mean, McKinnon's firing on all cylinders. Landeskog uh, getting into that fight uh, against Shen in game one. And I know Landeskog's not really thought of as a fighter, but it was a right moment. And Landeskog's one of those guys that, you know, you don't think of him as a fighter, uh, especially probably because he's Swedish. There's that stereotype with Swedish players, I guess, but man, he uh, he really uh, put Shen in his place, and you know, I don't think Shen's going to be running around like he normally does in series. Gordy Howe hat trick that game. The only series that's played three games right now. Boston is up two one on Washington. Overtime bonanza in this series as well. It's been pretty fun to watch. I love the Zidane Chara storyline in this one as well. Yeah, I mean, Washington, their biggest issue seems to be goaltending, right? I mean, you have Craig Anderson, who I don't think the majority of people knew was even on the Washington roster, uh, win game one for them in overtime. And then Boston comes back with two straight victories. Samsonov had a blunder behind the net to cough up the puck, which led to the game-winning goal in overtime in game three. Uh, Yeah, Washington, for whatever reason... uh, Goaltending seems to be a major issue for them. I thought Samsonov was their young goalie of the future. He's been hurt for a majority of the year, and then when he has played, he hasn't looked great. They have that other young goalie as well that has been struggling a bit this year and I believe also had some injuries. Uh, yeah, I mean, ugh. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I think I uh, – let me check the notes from last episode. I'm pretty sure I picked the Caps because I don't think I would uh, – Pick the Bruins. Yeah, we both picked the Caps in that one. I had seven and you had six. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But yeah, 2-1 Bruins right now. Lots of overtime there. That's been a pretty fun series to watch. Uh, Carolina up 2-0 on Nashville. Not really surprised there. Carolina has also looked really good. I, I don't think people realize just how good Sebastian Ajo really is. No, I mean, Ajo is Carolina's Braden point, right? Like he is a guy that was drafted you know, mid to late second round. I actually think Braden Point was drafted later than the second round, but still, he's just a guy that is incredible. And I think he's one of the more underrated players in the entire NHL at the moment. And I really like Carolina and they're my pick still to come out of the East. I I just think that everything seems to be clicking with them. And that crowd, like I think it was reported that there was only 10,000 people in the arena bullshit i think there was 12 still there was like 18 20 000 man i mean you look at the look at the highlights and it was amazing like it was electric i love seeing it like i can imagine the players were really feeding off it that's probably one of the reasons why carolina was playing so well to actually have fans in that crowd again like they've played almost a year and a half without fans it must have just been like such a huge morale boost to them, um, but there's no fucking way there was twelve thousand people in that stadium. Yeah, it looked uh, it was something else. It's nice to see that, and we see that as well in uh, the Pittsburgh Islanders series, which is tied at one. Uh, they've they've had uh, a lot of fans back in the building as well. Um, 
pretty interesting series there. He got the the kind of defensive first Islanders against uh, the Penguins, who actually the Penguins have been looking pretty solid. I've really noticed Chris Letang this series as well. Um, have you caught much of that one? I haven't, but I know Gino's been skating in practice, and he should be because I don't think he's played a game yet. So I believe Gino's going to be ready for Game Three. At least that's what people were speculating. The Islanders and the Penguins have kind of built up a really solid rivalry these last few years. Uh, I know, obviously, the Battle of Pennsylvania has always been Pittsburgh's biggest rival, but yeah, I, the Islanders and the Pens—they've they with the playoff games that they played against each other, and obviously regular season games—they've they've got a really good rivalry building here, and it's nice to see. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, that's a fun fun one to watch. Is that's definitely a rivalry that's really budded in the last three years or so. Uh, Vegas and Minnesota, two teams that the Canucks faced last year in the postseason, they're tied at one. Uh, Minnesota took Game One, which I was pretty surprised about. It took Vegas until the second period of Game Two to actually get on the board, but then they look to be getting a rolling a little bit. I still like Vegas in this one, but. Kaprizov looks the real deal, and uh, Stone has also been fantastic, and it looks like this is a series of goaltending, which is kind of surprising to me in, in some ways. Yeah, I, I thought I heard somebody say Cam Talbot's like tied for most shutouts in playoff games for active goalies at the moment, which is pretty shocking <laughs> when you think about it. Look, Kaprizov's looked great, but another guy who I think really took a big step this year for the Wild is... Uh, Erickson Eck, he's yeah. really kind of come into his own as like a really tough, hard to play against uh, player. Um, I do think that Vegas has more talent and Mark Stone. Like, how the hell did the Ottawa Senators not re-sign Mark Stone? Like, with all the issues we have with our ownership here in Vancouver, at least Aquilini's willing, rightfully or wrongfully, to play to pay his RFA players. Um, I, I just, again, I don't get how you let a player like Mark Stone uh, leave. Moving over to our division, the North Division. We saw the Jets throw a bit of a blanket and frustrate the Oilers. They're up one nothing in that series, taking that first game in Edmonton, doing it without Dubois and Morrissey as well. Uh, pretty good team effort by the Jets there. Oilers looked a bit frustrated. I still think this is going to be a much harder series for the Oilers than some people think, but I do think the Oilers will come out of it. Should be a fun game two here coming up, though. Yeah, I mean, the story of game one is Connor Hollebuck. Hollebuck was great game one. And I think we've all thought that if the Jets get the goaltending that we all think they sh could and should be getting out of a guy like Connor Hollebuck and he gets hot, uh, they could easily come out of the North Division and be the top team, and especially when you're missing guys like Pierre-Luc Dubois. And sorry, who else was missing in that game? Uh, I think I said Morrissey, Ehlers? but I meant I meant Ehlers. Uh, yeah. I think I said Morrissey for some reason. I think Morrissey threw me off because Morrissey and Drysaddle were old junior teammates as well. Um, but yes, I meant I meant Ehlers and Dubois. Yeah, uh, but if they get the goaltending, if Hullabuck holds up with his goaltending, Winnipeg is a team to look out for. I really, really think that they could come out of the North, and if they get Ehlers back healthy, Dubois back healthy. Uh, they have a legitimate shot of coming out of the North Division, in my opinion. Uh, 
It's a battle of the Connors. You got McDavid and Hellebuck and also Kyle Connor there, but really it will come down to Connor Hellebuck in that series. You're right. Lastly, game going on as we're recording uh, their first game, Montreal and Toronto. Obviously, it's a, a scoreless series. I believe the game is 1 1. I've been kind of watching it in the corner of my eye, but. The big talk is, of course, that the only thing really we could talk about and what will be the talk of this first game is that John Tavares uh, freak accident. And man, like that was that was scary to watch. Uh, it, it's just when you see a player react like that, uh, just out of it, I'm, I'm not sure if he was it looked like he was trying to get up on his own accord and then just kind of started leaning backwards. And the trainer was was trying to grab him. Um, that was that was scary to watch, man. Yeah, I mean, you hope he's okay. Uh, obviously, it seemed like it was an accidental uh, collision with Corey Perry there. Uh, Tavares was already on the ice, and Perry was trying to get out of the way, and his knee clipped uh, Tavares's head. And then, of course, the code. The stupidest. Had, oh. that, that, was, that was the most uncomfortable fight. I mean, you could see it. You could see Perry and Felino talking, and Perry's wiggling his gloves. He's like, well, yeah, he's going to answer the bell here. But, I mean... Perry went over and tapped Tavares. It was an accident. Why? Why the hell do you need to go out there and fight? Like that's so so stupid, and it looks really bad on the game. Yeah, I mean, there was. I don't think there was any malicious intent on Perry's part. And don't get me wrong, as a Canucks fan, I fucking hate Corey Perry. <laughs> Most right? people do. Like, yeah, like he stole the Hart Trophy from Daniel that one year. Uh, I'm not a fan of the guy whatsoever. I do think he does play on the edge and he does have a dirty side to him but this wasn't it pal this wasn't it um it was just it was ridiculous i shout out to john uh, jonathan tavares as he was being stretched off the ice he did put the thumbs up that's a good sign and then did you see uh dubis when the hit came he went running out of the office and running down that was really cool as well yeah. you know i mean say what you want about dubis the guy wears fake glasses but uh i thought that was pretty cool <laughs> yeah but he is an outside the box thinking gm i'm actually amazed a bit with what he was able to do with toronto given how tight uh, up against the cap they were but of course you get the ontario hometown discount uh the only thing i don't like about dubis doing that though is that's just going to cause freakouts for leafs fans um as well it's that's I, I don't know. It's uh, it's a li- maybe uh, maybe it's just me, but it felt a little bit theatrical and just stirring the pot a bit more. But uh, yeah, obviously he is very concerned, and and it is nice to see that sort of respect. Uh, I know uh, people in Vancouver be like, I don't think Jim Benning would be running down there uh, like that to if Quinn Hughes was injured. Yeah, I mean you would hope so. Just. For the optics of it, I guess, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. But again, the guy obviously likes theater if he's wearing glasses that are <laughs> prescription. My, my my glasses are actually uh, prescriptions, Doug. Just in case you're wondering, <laughs> Doug. Let's uh, let's take this into the free pour. Let's do it. It's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment, and I want to talk about. A band, and probably a little bit more specifically, a music genre I've really, really been getting into this year. Uh, the band is called Squid. They're from the UK, and they just put out their first LP, Bright Greenfield, and it's post-punk. And I've really, really been getting into some post-punk lately. Uh, Gang of Four, uh, old-school post-punk band that I've been really getting into. 
Uh, I've always liked bands like Television. Uh, the band that I also talked about on this segment in a previous episode, Black Country New Road. There's a massive, massive post-punk movement happening in the UK at the moment. Uh, this band Squid is right up there with bands like Black Midi, Black Country New Road. I really like them. They got some really, really, really cool songs. Uh, one song I really recommend is a song called Narrator. Also a really cool fact, the main singer of the band is the drummer, actually. And when you hear the drummer and the inflections he has on his voice and how emphatic he is when he sings, the fact that the guy is doing that with his voice while also keeping a killer beat just makes them all the more cool in my books. Squid, the album is called Bright Green Field. There's a punk band from the UK from the 90s called Snuff, uh, and their lead singer was a, a drummer as well. And I didn't realize it until I saw them at a Warped Tour one year. I'm like, who the heck is singing? He's like, oh, it's the drummer. Uh, that's, always a, that's always a rarity when when you see that. I know the, the Melvins do the two drummers and have uh, some vocals out of there too. So that's always a kick. Uh, for me, I just wanted to talk a bit about, we got the long weekend coming up here, and it sounds like after that, we're going to get a bit of relief on some of these restrictions in the province. So I just wanted to encourage people this long weekend to get out and enjoy it outside, but stay local. I've been making a point to explore a lot of parks in Vancouver with my time off here. Um, today I was out at Whitecliff Park in West Van, and I've been exploring some of the smaller parks closer to downtown as well. There's a lot to do in the city. I, I know we all are itching to get out and road trip and stuff, but let's just hold off a little bit longer, people, and I really want to enjoy the summer. So this is my plea to everyone to just keep trying a little bit harder. These numbers coming down are great to see. We were sub 400 today. That's pretty awesome. So, and everyone, enjoy the long weekend. Hang out with some friends and grass in a park somewhere. Uh, hopefully the weather cooperates for us. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 74, just about in the books. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Canuck stuff to talk about this off season. We're going to be doing a few different episodes, including a draft preview. We'll do a free agent episode, uh, what the Canucks should do with their free agents. Lots of stuff to talk about. And this next week looks to be pretty eventful as well. Yeah, I mean, just because the Canucks aren't playing any games... I don't think there's going to be a lack of news or topics to talk about regarding this team. Uh, this is going to be, I feel like we said this last year as well, but this is going to be one of the most important off-seasons this group of Canucks has. Like, this core that we have established here, this is going to be one of, if not the most important off-season. you got the PD and Hughes contracts coming up. Uh, you've got the expansion draft, which the Canucks seem like they're in a good position, but still... And you've got what reports are saying, some disgruntled players in the ranks at the moment, whether or not you can talk them off the ledge or keep them on the team uh, remains to be seen. Coaches, GM, uh, a weird draft coming up. It, there's going to be plenty to talk about over the next couple months. So 
We'll be buzzing out episodes as the news comes in. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore gas. And of course, we have the Connect Speakeasy outro playlist on Spotify. Give that a listen as well. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Then. And be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.